Good morning. Good to see everybody. Um, we're going to go ahead and get started uh, with our sermon time. And to do that, I'd like for you to stand one more time with me. I'm going to read several verses out of the end of Philippians chapter 3 and then a few into uh, chapter 4. 3.17 to 4.3 of Philippians is our text for the day. This is the words uh, of our Lord. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia, uh, <laughs> I had to practice that one, Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yet I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Let's pray together. Father, I'm always grateful to be um, in your presence with your people as we worship in song and communion and your word and in prayer in the giving of our tithes and offerings. Uh, while I'm doing that, I'm also reminded of the many thousands and millions of people across this country and across the world who don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. On the outside, they may seem like they have it all together, but on the inside, without Christ, we know that we are destined for destruction. Uh, I in particular want to pray today that as we enter into the fall season of our church, which is usually an exciting time and a time of growth and a time of, of great fruitfulness, I would pray, God, that you would help us to be an evangelistic body who is sent out into the city to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and coming again. That's what our city needs. There are many other things that present themselves as issues and problems, and those are real, but we know that deep down, we are all in need of a Savior, and His name is Jesus Christ. I pray that this body of believers would understand that, would take it to heart, and would uh, be sent out of here with Jesus on their lips and with the good news of Christ, death, burial, and resurrection in their hearts and proclaimed to the masses pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a seat. We are uh, talking, uh, going through the book of Philippians, and we're talking today about this question, who are you following? You may have seen that on the weekly. That's the title of, our, of what we're going to be discussing today. And if you remember, uh, Paul tells us in verses 12 to 16 of chapter 3 a few things, and these are what they are. First, Paul is a sinner, but Jesus has saved him. You cannot save yourself. Paul explains that to us very uh, succinctly, that his spiritual resume cannot save him, that only Jesus can save us. No matter how good you are or how bad you consider yourself to be, the only person who can save you is Jesus Christ. 
Secondly, Paul tells us in these few verses that are right before our passage today, that because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, I, as a follower of Christ, am covered by grace, which is unmerited favor. And that means two things. First, your eternity is secure. Your eternity is secure. Now, what that meant for a lot of people before our time, uh, back in the medieval times or even the early church, that your eternity was secure, what that meant is they usually died early because they could proclaim Christ without any reservation, knowing that their eternity was secure, that they would spend eternity with Christ in paradise. They could go into some very dangerous places and tell people about Christ because they knew where they were going when they died. They were very risky. They took risks because they knew exactly what their eternity held for them. And secondly, because of Christ's grace, I can be motivated to live for Christ and Christ alone for the rest of my life. Uh, I say that with some emphasis today because I think as followers of Christ, we can get into the mode where we write down on that Excel spreadsheet, these are the things that a Christian does, and I'm going to do them as much as I can until I get sick of it, and then I'm going to kind of do some other stuff and listen to this list of things, and then I might come back, and I might flow back over here, and we have this dichotomy in our life where we know we're to live like Christians, but it's not the sole emphasis of our life that we're to follow Christ and Christ alone for the rest of our lives. We call this lordship that Jesus said he is not just savior, but he is Lord. And if he's Lord, he will lead us for the rest of our life. Once we are saved by him, Paul also tells us in these verses, right before the passage that we're looking at today, that regrets of past sin and shame should be dealt with. And how does a Christian deal with those? We call it repentance and belief. That was a a phrase, by the way, coined by Martin Luther, one of the great reformers in the Christian faith and Christian tradition. He said that all of life is repentance and belief. That's how you deal with the regrets of your past. Now, I don't know about you, but I try to deal sometimes with the regrets of my past differently than that. I try to rationalize them. That that wasn't that bad. That wasn't that bad of a thing to do. Or I try to stuff it and forget about it and put it in a closet and invariably it comes back And Martin Luther says, because of Christ, who knows your heart, who sees everything you have ever done, who knows exactly what your motives are, he knows what you're going to do before you do it, because he knows all of that, because he died for all of your sin, you can come to him, and like what we read today, like David, you can come to him, in Psalm 51 he says, I come to you and I acknowledge that I'm a sinner and against you and you only have I sinned. And I can admit it because he already knows. And then I can receive and believe in the grace that has been uh, given to me because of Christ's death on the cross, that it's covered. So I can go from that moment out of repentance and belief without shame, without guilt, and with a strength to live out the mission that God has called us all to. Last, Paul tells us in the, in the verses right before our passage today that Christians can live in a blessed forgetfulness and with a passion for following Jesus without regret, without regret. Now today, Paul is going to imply to us a couple of real truths as he te- teaches us some theology, and then he gives us a very practical example of how that theology works itself out in life. He implies a couple of real truths, and these are them. These are the truths. I think I said that correctly, even though it sounded awkward. Uh, These are the truths, okay? We will follow 
someone or something. No matter who you are on the planet, if you're a human being, you are going to choose to follow something or someone. We call it um, being designed for worship. That God created within you a desire to chase after, to have affection for, and to pursue something or someone. He wants it to be God. He wants it to be Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and coming again, that we live all of our life out of worship of Him. But all of us are going to follow someone or something, no matter who we are. If we're a human being on this planet, that's just a reality. Secondly, Paul has a plea for us, and that is that we would follow... um, a particular kind of person. Okay, we're going to see what that person looks like in this passage today. And if we will do that, it will lead to a resurrected life, a new life that even Jesus talks about in John chapter 10, verse 10, where he says, I came so that they might have life and have it abundantly or to the full. Okay, maximum life. Only through Christ is that possible. So you're going to follow someone or something There's a particular kind of person that Paul uh, talks about that we should follow. And if we will follow that person, it will lead to a resurrected or new life, uh, life to the maximum or life to the full. So this is the question as we launch today. A choice must be made. Who will you follow? Who will you follow? Now, in verse 17, as we start in chapter 3, Paul says this, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Okay? Now, he's talking here about either a passive or an active followership. In this verse and the following verses, he's going to describe what passive followership might look like and an active followership might look like. So you've got to make a a decision. Who will you follow and will it be a passive or an active followership? When a statement is made that you follow someone or something, some of you might even disagree with that. You might say, I don't need to follow anyone. I'm going to follow myself. I'm an American. Like we do our own thing, right? Paul says, no, you you are a person who is following someone no matter what. Now, let me tell you a little story about my dad. I'm going to go see him this afternoon, actually, up in uh, the great uh, Republic of Estes Park up north in the mountains here. But my dad is like many dads. And... He's not one for instructions. Did you have a dad that didn't like instructions, anybody? Yeah. Um, As a matter of fact, I remember bringing him instructions from at a time or two, and it was immediately discarded because this was the common phrase, I'm going to figure this out on my own. Okay? Many of you have said that before. Now, what this did is it caused many a long afternoon of car repairs or other repairs that were completed but we're very painful, okay? Um, when you have to fix something as significant as a car repair over and over again because you're not following the instructions, it can get very painful. Now, you would, think, uh, you would think that I would have learned from that particular mistake of my father's because all of our fathers do make mistakes from time to time. Uh, but I became exactly like my dad. I'm going to be a figure-it-out-on-my-own kind of guy. Now, I did that for a while, and then I found YouTube, okay? And you can find anything on YouTube, including how to fix your car. But I was following my dad's example of thinking that I don't need an example in car repair. 
Now, I give you that analogy because I think a lot of us come to Christ and we think to ourselves, I don't need anybody else to help me figure this thing out. I'm going to dial it in all by myself. And we passively will follow someone or something and we don't even recognize it. Because if you choose not to follow anybody because you're figuring out yourself, you're really choosing to follow yourself. And it's a passive reaction or a passive response to what Paul is talking about here. Now, this is not the way the Christian life was created to be lived. The word Christian itself means little Christ or like Christ. Okay, A Christian is a person who has been saved by Jesus. Okay, A lot of us in here have been saved by Jesus. But this is the other part of that. It's a person who is now following Him. When Jesus saves you, your sins are forgiven, your eternity is secure, and then the heart that is new inside of you wants to follow Jesus. Now, that is what a Christian is. It's a, it's a person who is becoming like Christ, or is a little Christ, a person who is following Jesus. It's an active followership. And this is how Paul describes it. Number one, he uses the word brothers. So an active followership of Christ is done in community. Okay? Um, Not like a monk who separates himself from all community and goes off into the mountains and builds a cabin and is all by himself just kind of chanting and meditating uh, over a prayer book or, or even a Bible all by himself. That is not what an active followership of Jesus Christ looks like. It is done in community. He uses the word brothers because he wants to describe following Jesus as a group event. Now, I don't know if I've had the privilege of organizing many group events. Okay? Um, One of them is planting a church. Okay? And you know when you organize a group event, not everybody's on the same page. Okay? And a lot of people, when they come into following Christ, they find out, strangely enough, that they don't like everybody that calls themselves a Christian. Have you had a little bit of that experience before? And so they start to nickel and dime things and they start to choose for themselves. I know that being a Christian means I should go to church, but I don't like this community. So I'm going to separate it from it because there's people that... Paul doesn't give you the opportunity to do that. He says, you're in with these people calling themselves followers of Christ... And, and you have to be a part of that if you want to follow Jesus. This thing that we call the gathering uh, of, of the saints, our worship service, it's really not an option. Like, I'm not going to come hunt you down. Well, I might um, if you don't attend on a regular basis. But I, we're not going to do that, right? But it's an opportunity for you to engage in the community that Jesus has called you to because actively following Jesus has to be done. It is not optional. It has to be done in community, in relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Secondly, what does active followership uh, look like as described by Paul in this? He says you should imitate him and others. And he says this in another passage, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He, he, he uses this phrase imitating. And what it really is, is, is a, it's a joint imitating 
Because you don't want to imitate someone and that's the sole person you look to as your example because they're going to fall if they're not Christ, right? So Paul says, together, we need to imitate each other. We need to follow each other as we are following Jesus Christ. Now, the implication is that you're not only jointly imitating each other and and getting involved in those relationships, but you are following Jesus because other followers of Christ are looking at you. Um, This is one of the biggest things that I think that we have dealt with in the 10 years that New City Church has been in existence. One of the biggest things that we've tried to explain to people as leadership is your personal sin doesn't just affect you. It affects the body. Like our sin isn't just about us. Now there's a big part of it that is about us. But it affects the church. It affects our mission. It affects our influence in the city. It affects what God has called us to. It affects the glory of God that we're supposed to be reflecting to him. And so when we imitate Jesus, or excuse me, imitate Paul or others as they imitate Christ, remember that you're a follower of Jesus. Like it's your responsibility after Jesus knows you, saves you, calls you into his family, you're to follow Christ. And and then in imitating him, there's this resurrection language. When it's talking about imitating uh, someone, the word literally means becoming more like or coming into existence like those who are following Christ. So you're struggling in your walk with Christ. You got saved. You chose not to be in community. You chose to go your own way. You chose that following part of Jesus is the part I don't like. I just want to be saved by him. And then I want to go do my own thing. And now we realize, oh man, there's some problems in, in, in my life. Well, it's because you're not becoming more like Christ. You are not reflecting what Christ has done in your life. You are not reflecting the newness that's been created in your heart. So imitating is, is resurrection language. You are becoming more like Christ. You are growing in Christ's likeness and you are coming into existence as a follower of Christ that looks more like Jesus. Then Paul says, not only do you need to imitate Christ or imitate others as they imitate Christ, not only do you need to be doing that in community, but you need to be observant of those who walk like Paul and walk like others who are Christ-like. He says the word eyes there. He tells your eyes to keep your eyes on those people. Now this is language for be very careful, be concerned with, watch out for, and keep thinking about how to imitate Christ. Uh, Keeping your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Now, with all three of these things, I have a question Can we do, can we follow Jesus like we're called to do without the community, without the relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ? Some who might be more mature than us in Christ, some who might be less mature, but altogether a community project of discipling each other to be more observant in each other's lives about how we're following Jesus. Be careful, be concerned, watch out for, keep thinking about how to imitate Christ. It's a active followership. It's not passive. It just doesn't happen through osmosis. Now, secondly, in verse 18 through 20, Paul indicates, uh, tells us pretty clearly that the heart is always going to be tempted 
to other followership. Now, for everyone else other in this room, that's probably true. I mean, in this room, we're always going to follow Jesus no matter what because we're perfect. No, that's not the case. Our hearts, and this is important, by the way, our heart is tempted to follow other things. Paul's reaction after he says, this is what a follower of Christ looks like. They're in community. They're observant of those who are walking like Paul. They're trying to imitate jointly each other as they strive to follow Jesus Christ, not so that they'll earn salvation from him, but because of his salvation that they've already received for him. Paul says, in contrast to that, I tell you in tears that it's easy to follow something or someone other than Christ. And because of that, we need to be on alert. Here's the first thing he says. Be on alert for those who walk as enemies to the cross. Those who are in the Christian world. Those who are maybe even within the confines of a church body. Those who are in the family of Jesus Christ. Watch out for those who are walking as enemies to the cross. Now, many of us would say, I don't know anybody like that. Well, you have to understand what an enemy of the cross is, okay? An enemy of the cross is a person who is in denial that they are lost in sin and only Jesus can save them. That is an enemy of the cross. A person who comes against the, the understanding, the truth that Jesus was killed on a cross, he rose from the grave, he is resurrected from the grave and will come again someday... And that is the only way that we will be made right with the Father and that we will have maximum or abundant life. Paul says that there are people in your midst that are enemies to the cross. They believe that there is another way and in so believing have become enemies of the cross. This is is kind of where I get in trouble. Okay, Because what I'm about to say can be misconstrued and if it is please email andy about the misconstrual our mission as the church of jesus christ is the great commission it's to go into all the world preach the gospel teaching everyone to obey everything that god has commanded and jesus power is with us the power of the cross And his resurrection is with us. Now, I I use two words to describe that great commission. And they are evangelism and discipleship. So, we're to go into the world. And we are to proclaim to people that like us, they are sinners in need of a crucified, risen, and coming again Savior as the only payment for their sin. And without that payment, they will spend eternity separated from Jesus Christ in a literal place that we call hell. You can't do enough good things. This is important, Americans. Okay, if you're not American, this is important for you too. But this is important. You cannot do enough good things to enter into the kingdom. As a matter of fact... A lot of times when Jesus talks about the kingdom, he says these particular sins 
will keep you from the kingdom. And those sins are sins that all of us have committed. We need Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and His transformational power to resurrect us from the the grave that we would experience in this life and the eternal grave to come. Now, I go into that a lot because the American church is slowly, maybe not even slowly anymore, is quickly moving away from that foundational theological truth that is the root and the prime importance in the Christian faith. And we're getting to a place where good works are what we're all about. And I am for good works. I try to do as many of them as possible, not to earn more of God's salvation, but because I know that through those good works, I might have the opportunity to tell someone about Jesus Christ, His death on the cross, His resurrection from the grave, His coming back again so that they can be saved. So please don't misconstrue. And if you do, again, email Andy. Don't misconstrue. I'm saying don't do good works. What I'm saying is, do you bleed and in tears like Paul in this passage? Do you know people who don't know Christ? And are you willing because of what is awaiting them? What was awaiting you before you knew Jesus? Are you willing to go tell them about their need of a savior because of their sin? We got to get there. I would say that anything less than that can become inimical, inimical, something like that, an enemy to the cross. We can make the Christian faith about something that is partly true, but not fully true. Those who walk as enemies to the cross, be aware. He talks about sometimes those who are enemies to the cross are influenced by a God that is their belly. Okay, now I'm slightly overweight according to the BMI index that the government puts out. I think it's a scandal that they're allowed to get away with that. It's not talking about that, okay? It's not talking about, it, it, it is, Paul is, I think, looking at the Roman citizens in Philippi who are very well off, who are kind of the elite of the city. And he's looking at them and others like them whose God is their belly. Now, what is he talking about there? Their God is their appetites. Their decisions in life are based on what they want in an ongoing, never-ending fashion. Their God is their belly. Roman citizens at that time obviously um, believed in attaining wealth, and that attainment of wealth would satisfy their need to be reliant on their abilities rather than on the cross of Jesus Christ. Was it wrong to have lots and lots of money? It's never been inherently wrong to, to have money. Many of the great things that have happened in Christian tradition have been due to people who are righteously rich, giving their resources to the work of the kingdom and the spreading of the gospel. One pastor put it this way. There are always people who are righteously rich 
or righteously poor, and there are always going to be people who are unrighteously rich and unrighteously poor. And it comes back to this statement by Paul where it says, Who is your God? Is it your appetites or is it Jesus Christ crucified, risen, and coming again? Is He your desire? Is He what you are chasing after? I can tell you story after story after story of people with many, 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 many dollars in the bank account doing amazing things and being so generous that they hardly even know, like the passage that Jesus talks about, they don't know what the right hand is doing versus the left. They're, they're unaware, they're so generous in giving of their, their wealth and resources that it's not even an issue because their appetite isn't the money, it's Jesus. And I know lots of people who have nothing and their appetite isn't Christ. They have no material riches and their appetite isn't Christ. There is a righteous rich and a righteous poor, an unrighteous rich and an unrighteous poor. Paul says the difference is who is your God? Is it your appetites or is it Jesus? Those who believe that they have attained wealth instead of their wealth being given to them by God. Here's a little exercise. Later this afternoon, I will be driving to Estes Park, and I'm going to perform this exercise mentally, and in my heart, I'm going to pray about this. Do you believe that Jesus has given you everything you have? Or do you think you made it all on your own? You're a self-made man or woman. I did this all myself. Look at all these great things that I've accumulated for myself. It's been my experience. And I'll just give you this little piece of advice. When I begin to think that look at what I've attained, whether it be prestige or some financial thing or, or a material item, look what I've achieved. God has a neat little way of reminding me that all things flow from Jesus Christ. What you have, the, the prestige, your reputation, all of that is a gift from Jesus to you for the glory of God and for the sake of his mission to see many people come to know Jesus Christ on this planet. He says that the heart can be tempted by the belly. The heart and the mind can also be set on earthly things. Earthly things. The mind is set on it. The mind has been almost reprogrammed by the system of this world. And the things of this world are all I need for joy. Please, if you believe that, read the book of Ecclesiastes. Have you read that one? It makes me laugh and cry all at the same time. This guy who had everything possible... King Solomon, he had women, he had money, he had power, he had prestige, he had reputation. And at the end of the book, he says, you know what life's about? Loving God, enjoying God, finding your, your mind set on the things of God and not earthly things because earthly things will always lead to destruction and despair if that's your desire and appetite. Does that mean that we shouldn't enjoy earthly things? I'm going to enjoy a beautiful view of Long's Peak while eating one hamburger. Is that my limit today, honey? One hamburger, okay. And some potato salad. 
this afternoon. And I'm going to enjoy it for the glory of the Lord. But if some of those things become your sole pursuit in life and you have bought into a system that the things of this world are all you need for joy, it could be power, it could be influence, it could be materialism. Paul says that that is being tempted to other followership and that will lead to being an enemy of the cross. Finally, he says their glory, or excuse me, they glory in their shame. They glory in their shame. No, we don't believe this. I, I mean, help me if I'm wrong. We believe that if we make a rational argument about a particular truth, that everyone will say, you're right. It's a rational argument. You're right. That is true. I was wrong. I admit I'm wrong. I am accepting now the truth that you have rationally explained is true. And my experience is other than that. I, I happen to watch, and I probably shouldn't do this. I don't know if it gets me in the right frame of mind or not. But sometimes before I come over to the building on Sunday mornings, I might watch some of the Sunday morning uh, political news programs. Uh, I confess it as sin right now. God forgive me. You watch those things and you think, man, that's a rational argument. Why is that person accepting that? No, that... that and, and it's just a constant argument. And do you know why that happens? Because the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 1 why that happens. Our hearts are prone to the suppression of truth. We want to suppress the truth unless Christ intersects our heart and makes us new and gives us a new understanding and a new worldview of how He created the world and what's he, what He wants us to do in it. We want to suppress the truth. And it leads to glorying in the very things that we should feel shame about. That's what, it, that's what it's all about. They are bought into the lie. And not only are they bought into it, but they are evangelists for it. All the while knowing that it will not last and eternity is coming. Folks, that is how crazy we are. That is how desperate we are. For Jesus, and you know if you've been saved by Him, and you can see those around you who, who haven't been saved by Christ. That's why we need to be desperate for them. They're glorying in their shame. Now Paul says, this is how you avoid the temptation to put all your chips into what the world has to offer. And he talks about it in verse 20. The big theme, remember where your citizenship lies. You are not a citizen of this world. You are a citizen, if you know Christ as Lord and Savior, you are a citizen of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And there are three things that you need to remember about that citizenship. First of all, it is eternal. You cannot have the citizenship card revoked. Okay? No matter what you do, no matter how you approach it, your citizenship in heaven, if you know Christ as Lord and Savior, is established and it is eternal. It will never be broken. Second, and these build in terms of, of an understanding of importance of this. Second, Jesus is the king of the kingdom where your citizenship lies. Now, the thing about Jesus is in Revelation, it says, every knee will bow Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, is King. Okay, so you already know it. 
Your citizenship can't be revoked. He is the king. And all things, all things, now and forevermore are subject and subjected to him. Third, everything will be made new, including Aaron's slightly overweight BMI index lowly body. You're going to get a new everything. Like maybe, I'm just assuming, and maybe I shouldn't do that, but maybe if you want a full beard, but you can't have one in the kingdom, you will. Okay? Your lowly body is going to be made perfect. If you want, you know, some nice pecs and six-packs abs like the Spartan guys in the movie 300, you can have that in the kingdom. I don't know, okay? What I do know is that you will be perfected. You are going to be made new. So your citizenship lies in a place that's eternal. Jesus is the king and everything will be made new. So Paul says, imitate Imitating Christ involves acting like a citizen of Jesus' kingdom and living out that reality as a citizen on this planet. The heart is tempted to other followership. We should follow Jesus and imitate him and act like a citizen of his kingdom. Last, verses 4, 1 through 3. I love this because Paul can have this thing where he gives these great theological truths and a lot of times we just think about that man that could apply to so many different areas and how do i apply that theological truth to following christ on a day-to-day basis he gives us an example of euodia and syntyche he says the practical outflow of following jesus is love and steadfastness even when you have petty disagreements with your brothers and sisters in christ Yodia and Syntyche were at odds with each other. I, I, I believe, and most commentators say, they were fighting over something completely insignificant to their citizenship being in heaven. They had lost perspective, and they were arguing about the carpet color in the sanctuary. Okay? Um, they, were, they were mad, and it was because they had twisted their perspective. They weren't remembering that they were citizens of the kingdom and that their citizenship was in heaven. And so Paul says to them, because of all of this, this is who you should follow. This is what he looks like. We're always going to be tempted to follow others. Remember your citizenship lies in heaven with Jesus as King because of that. And I quote, agree what in the Lord, agree in the Lord. The perspective of your citizenship will help you get out of a lot of disagreements, tensions, fights, and conflicts with your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And this is the reason why. If Jesus is Lord, then he can help us resolve our petty disagreements. If Jesus is Lord, you can humble yourself as a subject to him and realize with your citizenship in heaven... What we're fighting about now is not eternally significant. His kingdom isn't going to be changed. The king is not like wringing his hands over the color of the carpet or whatever the issue is. And it may be even more severe than that. But if Jesus is Lord, he can help us resolve our petty disagreements. His objective truth can be seen in scripture and then applied humbly in life. Now, this is for the dads. 
Okay, and we're almost done, by the way. Um, there has been, I don't know, a couple times, okay, not a lot, but a few times, where my lovely bride has pointed out to me an area that I need some work on. Um, there's not many areas, you know, and it's only been a couple times. And there's been many times where my response to her loving, Christian, biblical response to my sin, my response hasn't been that loving, nor gracious, nor um, as truthful as it should be. Until she or the Lord has told me, this is why... Your response is probably not biblical and you need to be called to repentance. Because there's this little thing called a verse right here. See that one? That one says that your actions, your behavior, your heart is not centered on Christ. And there have been just a couple of times where I've tried to argue my way out of that. You know what the great thing about the Lord and the great thing about the Bible is? The Bible is an objective truth. There is very little I can do to argue against the words of Almighty God. And when I'm reminded that I'm a citizen of the kingdom who isn't perfect, but has been saved by a perfect King and Lord and Savior, I, like David, can repent and believe. True companions are those who are here to help each other as we follow Christ. You can receive critique. You can give critique, critique, excuse me, for the sake of the mission and for the sake of our eternal perspective that we are citizens of the kingdom. Paul says that's what following Jesus is all about. Following Jesus looks a lot like being a true companion who is helping each other as they follow Christ, reminding them that they're citizens of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now, the way that you enter into the kingdom is not through your good works. It is through Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, and we celebrate that through communion. We take the bread, which is the body of Jesus Christ broken for you, and we dip it in the wine or the juice representing the blood of Jesus Christ that was spilled and shed mercilessly so that we could receive mercy. Now, when you look at that today, the the body and the blood, the bread and the juice or the wine, remember how you got into the kingdom. Remember, it's not your resume. And remember, following Jesus is what we are called to do. One of the greatest things, dads, going back to my little story, is repenting and believing in front of your family. Moms, one of the greatest things you can do to help nurture your child to know who Jesus is, is to repent and believe in front of your children. Let's pray as we come to the communion table. Father,
Let us never get distracted and become enemies of the cross. Let us never lose our passion to speak with our lips the gospel of Jesus Christ as we try to serve and love others. For whatever reason, you have called us to this city in this time to be people who have a God who is not their belly or their appetites, but a God who is our Lord and Savior. You have called us to set our minds on heavenly things, on Jesus, on His kingdom, and not on the things of this earth that falsely tell us that they will satisfy us. We know that following Jesus is active. It isn't a passive thing that happens through osmosis. As we get around each other and imitate others as they imitate Christ, the body is strengthened for the glory of God and for the sake of His mission. Help us to remember those truths today as we come to your table. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.